If you've tuned into WIHI today, you'll hear a podcast about a subject we know a lot about, patient safety. If you're looking to step up your patient safety work, we're proud to invite you to this year's IHI National Forum, where patients and providers gather every year to gain actionable strategies for improving quality and safety in healthcare. This year's safety is featured as one of our 10 forum tracks, which are a great way to focus on a specific suite of courses and sessions designed to help you make an impact back at your organization. The forum this year will be held at, in Orlando this December. I'll be there in my blue shirt, and so will many of the great guests you've heard on WIHI. For more information on the forum, visit IHI.org forum or IHI.org forum tracks. For a deeper dive into safety, there's IHI's Patient Safety Executive Development Program being held next March in Boston. PSE unites experienced clinicians from around the world with IHI and our trusted faculty, guiding safety professionals toward actionable strategies, skills, and the right tools to lead strong and effective patient safety programs. PSE can help ensure that your patients receive the safe and reliable care that they deserve and will help foster the long-term health of your department and healthcare system. For more information, visit IHI.org slash patient safety exec or shoot us an email at info at IHI.org. Now, here's WIHI. mention the phrase office-based surgery, and most patients associate that with minor surgery. And anything minor can't be that risky. Well, can it? Well, there are millions of outpatient surgical procedures that are performed safely outside of hospitals today, and that's a good, high-quality, convenient, usually cost-effective improvement. But it's not the entire story. As the number of office-based surgeries has grown, so have adverse events, including deaths. Anesthesiologists and researchers and others in the medical profession tracking these developments say these unwanted outcomes are largely due to the failure to respond quickly and effectively to unexpected crises. There are now efforts underway to draw attention to the range of events that can occur and what to do immediately. We have the creators of a new emergency checklist with us to talk about the need and to answer your questions on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you live bi-weekly, and then after the show, you can find us on our website, IHI.org, and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Unlike perhaps many of you, I didn't know there was an organization called the Institute for Safety in Office-Based Surgery until I met Dr. Fred Shapiro. Then I found out that his organization, with the help of Ariadne Labs, known worldwide for safe, excuse me, safer surgery checklists, was about to release this new manual with copious instructions on how to respond to some 26 critical events. So it's a real privilege to be able to present this work, which is truly hot off the press. It's just being launched. On the phone is Fred Shapiro. He's assistant professor of anesthesia at Harvard Medical School, and he works as an anesthesiologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Fred chairs the American Society of Anesthesiologists Committee on Patient Safety and Education, and in 2009, he founded the Institute for Safety in Office-Based Surgery, ISOBS. I'm not sure if we're really supposed to say it or I, yeah, something like that. Welcome, Fred. Thank you, Matt. All right, you're there. Thanks. Okay, great. Here in the studio across from me, I've got Alex Hannenberg. He is past president of the American Society of Anesthesiologists and currently serves as its chief quality officer. He is a senior research scientist at Ariadne Labs. And as many of you know, that's a health systems innovation center at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Boy, everybody's names are getting really long and involved. And Brigham and Women's Hospital hospital. There, Alex works on surgical safety programs. It's great to have you here, Alex. Welcome. Pleasure to be with you. All right. And last but never least, right across from me, I've got Jennifer Linochi Edwards. She's an executive director at IHI, focused on patient safety across the continuum, including primary care and the post- acute care settings. Jennifer is also leading uh, IHI strategic partnership right now with the military health system. Welcome, Jen. Hi, everybody. All right. We're going to start with Fred. So, Fred, before you and Alex in particular get into describing this checklist, I'd like you to set the context for us. 
um, what's going on with trends in office-based surgery that we maybe should be uh, paying attention to? What are some of the problems that you're trying to address? And we've got a crop of slides here, and we'll try to move them along in the right uh, timing and order. Thanks. Thank you, Madge. Uh, the term office-based anesthesia has been deemed the wild, wild west of healthcare. The reason for that is that uh, several fold. Number one, there's a lack of uniform regulation in the United States. Only 31 states have any type of regulation, and that can be a, uh, could be uh, a large document or a half a, a half a paragraph or page. Over the past 25 years, there's been an increasing number and variety of cases. Concurrently, there's been an increased complexity of cases and patients. The other point about office-based anesthesia is that there is sedation being administered by anesthesia and non-anesthesia personnel. And there's also a lack of resources to handle any kind of emergencies that arise. The public has seen recently there's a widely publicized fatalities or malpractice claims. And I believe you have a slide in front of you just to share with you a, a few things. There's a teenager in Florida who developed uh, uh, malignant hyperthermia, which was um, an allergy to anesthesia, and she died uh, having an elective procedure because she had malignant hyperthermia and the office wasn't unable to handle that emergency. The other pictures are of young children and uh, young adults that were undergoing dental sedation and wisdom tooth extraction in dental offices. And also you see Joan Rivers in 2014 that died having an endoscopy, a GI, a gastrointestinal procedure in an office-based setting. So what we did was we took a look um, at the, the safety. We, we, we did a literature search, and we, we looked at all these studies that were performed in, to, to talk about this because the world is always based on evidence-based findings. And what we found, that there was a lack of randomized control trials. So that means there's not enough evidence to support best practices. We gathered of, uh, several of our office-based anesthesia experts around the country. And what we came up with is a consensus of opinion that uh, we could enhance the quality of care by engaging in proper procedure and patient selection, provider credentialing and facility accreditation, and incorporating patient safety checklists and professional society guidelines into practice. Based on that, in 2009, we formed the Institute for Safety in Office-Based Surgery, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization in 2009. Our initial goals were to promote patient safety and outcomes research, design tools for advanced detection and prevention of adverse events, we want to collaborate with all subspecialties, educate physicians and patients, and because of the lack of randomized controlled trials and evidence-based guidelines, we, we had hoped to generate an evidence-based standard of care for all safer practice. We use the team approach using multidisciplinary organizations we developed the, uh, the ISOBIS, our Institute for Safety and Office-Based Surgery Surgical Safety Checklist, was a, was a customization of the World Health Organization checklist that was developed by the Safe Surgery, Safe Lives Program, which Dr. Hannenberg can share with you. We were looking to have oversight for these office-based practices. And our initial goal was to develop trigger tools using the Institute of Healthcare Improvement, the IHI method, to detect potential causative events. And we also envisioned online education and training. That this is what our goals were in 2009. And as you can see, being here today, we're, we're very proud to be able to do this. 
We also envision a multidisciplinary network of, of um, office-based surgery experts, anesthesiologists, nurses, surgeons, healthcare providers, healthcare companies, insurers, finance, business law, and medical specialties. Some of the things that we developed uh, was the uh, patient, say, uh, the provider checklist. And this was the safety checklist for office-based surgery, which you can see. Again, we customized this based on the World Health Organization template. And this was recently added to the American Society of Healthcare Risk Management for office-based surgery as a resource in 2016. We also shifted our attention to educating the patient, questions patients can ask to engage and empower them and to ensure their safety in, in this shared decision-making process. So we created an office-based uh, checklist for the patient. This was added to the Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare website, and it was uh, sent in a subscriber newsletter to over 500,000 people. We've had various publications, various collaborations that has led to uh, today's webinar. But in answer to your question, what do we know? In order to uh, gain knowledge about the current standards and practice in uh, office-based surgery, large-scale data regarding patients' procedures and outcomes is being realized. What we do know, that the American Society of Anesthesiologists closed claim product looked at um, office-based claims from 2000, of 1996 to 2011. And the, the type of patients that were involved in that were middle-aged, approximately 45 years of age, 65% female, 80% American Society of Anesthesiologists, class one and two, undergoing elective surgery, and the most common were plastic surgery and ophthalmology surgery. What we do know is the plastic surgeons looked at their data, and what they found since in 2014 published, they looked at five and a half million cases and they looked at 22,000 incidents, 94 deaths. The risk they established was one in 50,000. A pulmonary embolism was the most common cause of death. And abdominoplasty was the most common uh, procedure that was done. And in looking at the data outcomes, we looked at the, the, uh, the ASA status, the American Society of Anesthesiologists classification of patients. As I said earlier, the number of patients and the complexity of patients has increased. We looked at the data from the National Anesthesia Clinical Outcomes Registry and the Anesthesia Quality Institute that was founded by Dr. Hannenberg in 2011. And based on the data that we have, we've seen that there's an increased number of patients with, uh, that are uh, a cr critically ill, sicker patient population undergoing procedures in the um, outpatient and office setting. Another study that we did, most of the time people say ambulatory and they mean outpatient. Well, we gathered the data from the Anesthesia Quality Institute, and in, we looked at 108,000 office cases versus about three and a half ambulatory surgery center cases. But we found that although these settings are often grouped together, there's statistically different differences in the patient demographics. We found that in office-based cases, there's been a dramatic increase. This is coming from the National Anesthesia Clinical Outcomes Registry. Between 2010 and 2014, females being more common than males, but there's been a dramatic increase in cases from 10,000 to about 50,000 cases. In ambulatory, there are about 200,000 to 600,000 cases. 
The most common office-based claims were in dental procedure, gynecologic procedures, orthopedic, anesthesia and pain, and gastrointestinal procedures. The most common uh, complaints were inadequate pain control and nausea and vomiting. As I said earlier, we switched our attention to engaging the patient, ensuring their own outcome, and we created a checklist for the patient. Hey, Questions? Fred, I'm going to just jump in right now, if that's okay with you. Um, you've given us a lot of background, and I will, I, I don't mean to uh, disturb your flow here, but just hold your fire for a moment. We've got a pretty good uh, kind of contextual background of and really extensive research. I think it's super impressive, and I, I think the evidence base for everything that is coming forward here uh, I think is extremely uh, impressive, and I hope everyone takes advantage also of all the links to see all the extensive work and the literature that leads up to this. So hold for a moment. Let me now bring in Alex, because I want Alex to get to, you know, the thing that you're so excited about, and I think which is also just kind of hit the websites and is being presented. There was that American Society of anesthesiologists meeting this new emergency manual. Um, and, you know, one of the things I want to start off by asking Alex is that I would dare to suggest that here at IHI and maybe some of our listeners, we think of the checklist as preventive. In other words, everything, which is part of what Fred was just talking about, the office-based surgery. Have you done this? Have you done this? Have you, have you patients, ask these questions ahead of time. This is all about what to do when something uh, goes wrong. So how important is that distinction? And uh, why have uh, you decided to put so much focus on that? Thanks. I think you can consider checklists uh, falling into two broad categories. One is checklists that are used in routine operations and those that are used in critical events. The WHO Safe Surgery Checklist and the Safe Surgery Saves Lives campaign was designed to improve the reliability of key safety processes in routine care. So those are used in every case, every day. The crisis checklists, which borrow a lot of knowledge from the development and use and implementation of the WHO checklist, are meant to be used for rare, high-acuity events and are focused on rescuing patients from those events. I agree with you. I think the WHO Safe Surgery Checklist is an ounce of prevention. It is about avoiding preventable errors uh, and omission. Uh, but there are some of those events uh, that will occur nonetheless. The essence of that is that uh, because they are rare events, no clinician has much experience treating them. Uh, they occur rarely. There are some conditions that you can go an entire career without seeing. And so when it does occur, the ability to effectively and comprehensively manage those events is limited. Most clinicians, even with an ounce of humility, recognize that challenge and I think are generally more attracted to crisis checklists, to be honest, than they are to checklists for routine use because appreciating the need for a checklist in routine use requires a recognition that either you have or you may omit routine steps in patient in patient care. The other factor, aside from the rarity of these critical events to recognize, is that when they do occur, it is for a clinician about the most stressful event you can imagine. And there is a mountain of biopsychology literature demonstrating the failure of memory, failure of cognition under those circumstances. A number of years ago, NASA published a compendium of about 50 such studies addressing obviously a major concern for manned spaceflight, uh, but the uh, relevance of that information to clinical medicine is pretty obvious. 
obvious. Compound that with fatigue, a rare event you haven't seen in your career or you haven't seen in decades, threatening a patient's life at three in the morning when uh, you are, are sleep deprived. This is all about the frozen brain and finding the antidote to the frozen, uh, frozen brain. With respect to proving the value of these things, obviously they occur rarely. So the opportunity to test the impact of crisis checklist on real events is pretty much non-existent. So what we know about the value of the crisis checklist comes from simulated critical events uh, in, in surgery. And there are a number of excellent simulation studies that very consistently show increased completeness of clinical management by both experienced clinicians and residents in training. Probably the best known such study was published by Alex Ariaga and our group at Ariadne Labs in the New England Journal of Medicine 2013. And these were simulated emergencies. And basically what was found was that well-trained clinicians completed the key management steps about 75% of the time without checklists when they manage those simulated emergencies with a checklist, they completed about 95%. So essentially, we took these teams from getting about a C to getting an A. And for patients undergoing these kinds of critical events during their surgery, that is a really big difference. And we expect ourselves, our patients and colleagues expect us to rescue patients when those events occurred. One thing that we've learned in studying the implementation of these checklists is that successful implementers, by which I mean those places where you can pretty much count on a checklist being deployed during an applicable emergency, they use the checklist for a number of things other than the real-time management of these critical events. One of these uses is to prepare for a case where you anticipate a risk. Patient is having an operation where the anatomy suggests that there's an increased likelihood of hemorrhage or a patient with a history of an arrhythmia is coming for surgery. Effective users of these tools will use them for a huddle before the surgery saying, we might have some hemorrhage or we might have an arrhythmia and take a few moments to make sure that the drugs and devices needed to manage those events are ready at hand. It's a good educational tool just to review the key steps. And the thing about crisis checklists is they're not textbooks. They're not even manuals. They are highly distilled lists of the can't-miss steps in emergency management. And that's a good thing to try to keep, uh, keep front of mind. But what we see very clearly is that in places that use the checklist for review, use the checklist for educational review, and use the checklist as a framework for debriefing or after-action review of either real critical events or simulated critical events, those are the places where it is most likely that it will be used when it is needed. We say use begets use. To draw the connection between first the WHO safe surgery checklists, the Ariadne Labs, Stanford's pediatric crisis checklist, and the Isobis office-based checklist, I would remind the listeners that at the very bottom of the WHO safe surgery checklist published back in 2008, there's an asterisk phrase that says this should be modified to fit your local conditions. And I think what Fred and his colleagues in Isobis have done is to apply that principle to the OR crisis checklist because the office environment in many important respects is very different from the hospital operating room for which the crisis checklists were originally designed. Okay. Thank you. Um, very, very helpful framing. All right. I think what I'm going to do, I'm uh, looking at the time, but I part of it is we want to, uh, Vicki, could you put the link up there that takes us 
Oh, you do have it there. I just want to remind people the ISOBIS safety checklist of office space anesthesia thing is there. And it's a great link, and I invite people to go look at it. It has 26 critical events. I'm going to have Fred talk about that for a few minutes in just a minute. But I'm going to just bring in Jennifer, I think, for a moment right now, uh, just to mix things up a little bit. Um, We have not drilled into this in particular here at IHI, but uh, Jennifer and colleagues uh, think a lot about safety uh, in the office practice setting. And I wanted Jennifer to kind of... Put put some of this together. Sure, uh, how we would connect it. Thank sure. You. No, I mean I think I think the first thing I want to do is is thank Alex and Fred for putting this out into into the into the space that we are talking about here because you know there's not an ambulatory provider that I don't meet with um, out what you know when we're out talking to um, all of our um, organizations that that is not thinking about ambulatory safety. So this is really about expansion of the thinking of the events that are happening in the ambulatory space. Um, We know that there's been a a large cry for really understanding from a measurement perspective, but as as well from a tools and um, resources um, perspective, how we can begin to improve um, the ambulatory safety space. And, and, and right now we're really thinking hard about quality, but we really need to understand the underlying principles of safety in the space. So that's just comment number one. And the second one I want to say to Alex is, um, you know, talking about the, in, the organizations that are really um, using this checklist well, um, you know, talking about that huddle, using the, these, um, you know, these uh, precursors to think about the patients and the patients' risks and how they might be mitigated. I think that's really powerful stuff. And um, and I think that I'd love to see an implementation guideline or some real um, actionable implementation steps that come out of this. So... Right. I think the implementation issues, uh, you, you want to just mention uh, the at least where, where we are right now, uh, not with this one in particular, but in general. Yeah. I'm so I'm so glad you mentioned that because we've just completed a study of downloaders of of surgical safety uh, crisis checklists and uh, surveyed and interviewed and one thing that is just hitting us over a head over the head like a two by four is the fact that printing them out putting them in the operating room alone doesn't accomplish much. We call that printing and plunking, and there is more to it than printing and and plunking. As a direct result of those surveys and interviews, last week we actually launched an implementation toolkit for crisis checklists, and I think you have the web link on the screen. But it is meant to lower the burden of effectively implementing, involving uh, training, getting buy-in, and the key resources. So if you need to go convince your operating room director to support the effort to do it, we give you a discussion outline, a little video PowerPoints for training. We'll provide scenarios and actually supply lists to do low-tech, easily accessible team training exercises that not only introduce the checklist, show people how valuable it is improving their own performance but also brings with it all of the benefits of team training with respect to teamwork, communication, and so forth. It's really a twofer. Okay, sounds good. Uh, and uh, there's the implementation link that's up there uh, on in the chat. By the way, if there's anybody who's tuning in and not looking uh, at a computer screen, but just connected by phone, don't forget... Uh, you can get all the material by emailing info at IHI.org, and everything also gets posted to our website by tomorrow. All right. Now, Fred, before we go to Q&A, I'm going to swing back your way. And uh, this um, ISOBIS safety checklist for office space anesthesia crises, uh, in many ways, uh, it, it doesn't have a lot of frills or bells and whistles. It is just chock full of uh, very, very clear information. 26 uh, critical events are are in there. And I wonder if you could just in general give us a sense of how you chose these 26 events and maybe the broad categories. Well, as Alex alluded to earlier, we customized this, the office-based emergency manual 
to uh, specifically the office-based setting based on looking at a, a pseudo-meta-analysis, if you will, of all the currently existing checklists. We found that there was current emergencies that were pretty much consistent with all the checklists um, that are uh, out with the uh, with the uh, World Health Organization um, Checklist Collaborative. And what we gathered is a, um, a group of experts uh, knowledgeable in the office-based arena, and we uh, customized the checklist using the Ariadne format, um, and we created the checklist. Now, there's there are 26 emergencies, but if you'll notice, all these emergencies happen in an office or a surgery center or a hospital. But what you have to understand is we took into consideration the limited resources, the limited personnel. So um, what we thought of is something as simple as uh, an emergency. For example, we talked about pulmonary embolism being the most common emergency that we have from evidence-based data. Not only do you have to uh, approach the emergency with the algorithm or the, the steps to take care of the patient, but in an office you have to think about transporting that patient in addition to diagnosing the situation. Another issue is the loss of oxygen or the loss of power that you probably wouldn't see as often in a hospital or a surgery center. You have to think about that. When we created a check, our original checklist, when we were our surgical safety checklist to a plastic surgery office, we did a study. And what we found is the most common um, uh, item that came up was there was a, uh, the receptionist calling for help changed every day. So simple things like that, which you don't think about in a hospital, that has to be uh, documented clearly and uh, delineated to all the office-based personnel. There's uh, local anesthetic toxicity in the cosmetic surgery, in, in dermatology, in orthopedics, and uh, gastrointestinal procedures. Local anesthetic toxicity happens, but there is a certain treatment regimen that has to be initiated. And these guidelines happen in, um, there have been dental office practices where you deal, they're dealing with pediatric patients or children in addition to adults. So what we did in our ISOBIS emergency manual is we specifically gave the, um, the, res the resuscitation for p children, pediatric dosage, and for adults. And um, these are some of the things that uh, I think would highlight the, the, the spe specific need in the office-based crisis setting. Wow. Okay. Thanks. Um, and I, I, you know, we don't have a lot of slides, we don't have slides of each of the different events in here, but I do hope people will click on the link. One thing that strikes me uh, in, you have a second page of this thing, and it says the principles of responding uh, to the crises uh, is immediate call for help. Uh, I don't know if I'm going in the right order here, Alex, you'll, or Fred, you could tell me which direction I should go, to the right or down. <laughs> well, anyway, immediate call for help, secure a plan for crisis, obtain transfer of care plan, best practices, and safety. So there is a lot of emphasis on steps to take there, but also getting to a safer, uh, you know, an environment uh, with, with more intervention. And one question that I have about that is, shall, should everyone assume when you go to an outpatient surgery center that there is an arrangement of where that pa patients are transferred to? Uh, should there be some sort of crisis? I don't know if that's an obvious. In other words, they know they will be calling these people and you would typically go to X or Y hospital. I think that's probably a reliable assumption in licensed or accredited ambulatory surgery centers. As Fred said, the office setting is not reliably regulated, so I wouldn't necessarily assume that that's the case universally in office practices. Okay. You were scribbling something. Is there anything you wanted to add? 
Yeah, I mean, the comment Fred made about discovering in the course of thinking about implementing uh, these checklists that the receptionist who was going to, in the background, manage the transfer arrangements changed every, uh, every day. Stressing the system by practicing with these uh, uh, manuals always uncovers system weaknesses like that like that and i want to make a plug for in situ simulation meaning in the clinical environment as the training tool as opposed to high fidelity remote offsite simulation centers i love them i've learned a ton in training in simulation centers, but every time I've participated in a emergency drill using the checklist in a vacant operating room, we find something that is fixed the next morning. And uh, so the dual benefit of training the people uh, and improving the system is of huge value. Okay, thanks. Jennifer, um, Matt, yeah, uh, go ahead, Fred. I, uh, yeah, I'm go. in for a minute. You may. To continue with that comment that Alex made, in, uh, what he talked about was in-situ simulation, and, and that's taking the simulator this, uh, and creating an emergency to educate the people in the office, but bringing it to the plate, bringing it to the office so we can prevent this. Part of it, accreditation is that they, uh, an accredited ambulatory surgery center or an accredited office is required to do these emergency drills. We published a study in 2014 with an in-situ simulation in an office-based plastic surgery practice. That's how we determined that the receptionist w needed to be educated on the emergency transfer. But we simulated these uh, um, malignant hyperthermia and cardiac arrest. So these are two specific emergencies that we conducted, and we had all the, the education before and during and after uh, the crisis. But it's an educational tool that I just wanted to emphasize, Alex, what Alex had said. Now we have the manual. We also have done a feasibility study with in-situ simulation. So it would be a logical progression to incorporate this type of education for all these offices. Thanks. This, this concept of in-situ simulation, I, I just want to make clear, everybody can do this. We did this yesterday morning. Uh, on the stage at the Boston Convention Center during the ASA annual meeting. We had an emergency drill with a group of five real live cl clinicians. The equipment that was required was the bottom end, low, uh, lowest uh, quality mannequin you can find and as many supplies as could fit in a rollerboard suitcase. And we did a simulation with a debriefing. The whole purpose of it was to have the people in the room look at that and walk out and say, I don't need a simulation center. If they can do it on the stage at the convention center, I can find a place in my hospital to do this. All right. Take away an excuse. Uh, th thank you, Fred and Alex. And uh, Jen, any any comments uh, what you heard? Yeah, I think to bring this up a level, I, I think that one of the keys is knowing where your risk areas are. And I think in ambulatory space, we really don't necessarily know where they are. Um, and so the, that the example of that changing receptionist at the front desk, I mean, that's not a clinical you know, I'm an ER nurse. I've I've been in these kind of scary situations, but you never think about the, you know that person at the front desk not knowing who to call, call you know, calling anesthesia, or calling the right ambulance service for the transfer. So, I think the key takeaway for anybody who works in the ambulatory space, whether or not you do some of these, you know procedures with anesthesia is know what your risk areas are, you know, really start to dig into some of those. Well, I guess the point of this is that sometimes it's hard to know. We did an emergency drill on uh, airway emergency. And in the scenario, the patient was going to need an emergency uh, cricothyrotomy. So we said, go get the emergency airway surgical instruments. The surgical technician 
happy to say, knew where that was, came back, and we discovered at that moment that we had the, all, all the instruments but none of the tracheostomy tubes. They were someplace else. And so by the next morning, they were packaged, to get, packaged together. I could go on and on. One hospital we interviewed uh, discovered during one of these drills that they had little blue buttons to sound an emergency alarm on the wall in the operating room. They didn't work. And they discovered this. So, I mean, I agree with you, understanding, and some people will look at their sentinel events and design their team training schedule around that. Uh, but the point of uh, this, these exercises is they uncover stuff that you wouldn't know otherwise. One other point, if I may, about that is that this has to be a multidisciplinary cross-professional exercise. The surgical technologists in the operating room recognize problems to which I, as an anesthesiologist, am completely blind and vice versa. These things are most successful when everybody owns it. Okay. All right. Uh, thanks. I think this uh, uh, begs another question. Uh, that I'm seeing in the chat, and I want to invite uh, folks to chime in uh, with your questions. I know it's going to probably take people uh, a little while to dig into this material. So another reminder, you do see email addresses on everyone's slides, the bio slides, uh, and uh, I'm sure people would be happy uh, to kind of point you uh, in the right direction as you absorb most of this. But this person is asking, uh, can you explain more uh, about the patient's with with ASA status over three and whether these patients should be having their procedures in an office. So we're, we're kind of getting uh, at, at, at some basics. Is that for you or Fred? All right. That's Fred. All right, Fred there. Alex says it's for you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh, um, well, w what we do know is from the Anesthesia Quality Institute and the National Anesthesia Clinical Outcome Registry is the and the fact is that the, the number of patients beyond healthy patients that are getting a sicker and sicker patient population are being performed um, in ambulatory surgery centers and doctor's offices. So I think, you know, the, the question is, which patients can we do and which can't we do? One of the things that uh, the consensus of opinion with the office-based outcomes paper that we published in 2014 is that that has to be a proper patient and procedure selection and uh, in working with the standards and guidelines of the different societies, professional societies. And so that involves a collaborative uh, issue. I think a, a short answer is if you have a patient that is stable, that is having a minor procedure, you know, it depends upon the procedure too. I mean, if, uh, for example, easy, easy answer. There are dialysis patients that get routine dialysis in these outpatient or uh, uh, centers on a weekly daily basis. Now, these historically are not healthy patients, but they are, these procedures are performed. But again, if the, the facility has to be prepared for emergencies, the facility has to be prepared for transport, this education of how to handle this. So, I mean, there's non, no one clear-cut, straight answer of could you do a patient that's uh, a sicker patient? Because the fact is, around the country, there's an increased number of uh, procedures being done. So the onus is upon the patient and procedure selection. And as Alex alluded to, that requires a multidisciplinary approach for the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, and the nursing uh, personnel to gather together and say, is this realistic and what would happen if? Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, and I hope that uh, helps uh, answer your question. I want to encourage uh, more. Um, Jen, I, Jennifer, I wanted to ask you, uh, as you think about this, you know, in the early days, early days, I should, it's not that long ago, of, <laughs> of 
you know, talking about medical errors and risks, you know, uh, in the acute care setting, hospitals, in some ways, I think, I feel like we're talking about mini acute care, uh, you know, environments in some of these office-based sure. uh, in things now. They are becoming, uh, right. when you think about total joint replacements being done That's in ambulatory right. surgery centers. So there is right. a real blurring. Sure, a dialysis example, for sure. Right, and yeah. blurring of the lines. Sure. And so we think about, well, guidance for uh, patients and families. And initially, many uh, facilities, hospitals, systems, reluctant to start talking about problems uh, that they were working on because they didn't want people to think for five seconds that there was anything unsafe or anything to worry about. And I would imagine that a lot of patients and family members don't worry too much. They worry much more about going to the hospital, sure. I, I just think culturally. Sure. So what's our message in a way uh, to patients and families uh, in, in this environment now where things are shifting? It's not clear you'd have a choice. You could say, hey, I don't want to have that done here, uh, but you might get a lot of pressure uh, even from your insurer, um, you know. Sure. So I'm just wondering. Yeah, I mean, I think we go back to, I'm going to say this again, understanding your risks, right? So as a patient... Um, going into an acute care or even an office-based to really understand kind of what you're getting into and being able to ask those hard questions of the provider, of the anesthesiologist. Um, I think those are, are critical um, action steps on part of any patient going into, into any part of the system. And I will say that, you know, I did review the patient checklist um, associated um, with this tool, and I really, I thought it was uh, they're great questions. You know, they're great questions. But you know what? They're still hard to ask. So from a patient perspective, it's still hard to ask your provider, um, you know, how often do, does this, do you fail at this procedure, right? So so I think, it, you know, it, the questions are the right questions. And even as a healthcare provider, I understand the importance of them, but they're still really hard to ask. That is, that is a cultural barrier to overcome, no doubt. Uh, I mean, I was going to point to the patient checklist that uh, ISOBIS has produced. The American Society of Anesthesiologists has something that's sort of more broadly applicable uh, as well. But picking it up, bringing it with you and using it uh, are, the, uh, are the keys. And uh, there is a barrier. Thank you. Uh, any other questions? Uh, I don't know. I, I'm curious about our audience. I didn't look at the enrollment list uh, in any detail before. I'm, we're, I'm curious if you want to let us know if you're working in office space, uh, kind of what, what your uh, particular role in the process is. One thing I'm also thinking about in terms of checklists, and I remember this a lot because it was in our campaign phase here at IHI, um, we talked a lot about um, that OR, the basic surgical uh, checklist uh, in the operating room before, you know, scalpel or something hits the skin, as I recall, <laughs> of fostering communication and people knowing who each other was in the room uh, behind those masks and uh, kind of getting to know us, you know, really fostering that teamness. Uh, do you feel like this also is is a a team building uh, type of thing. Well, with respect to getting the whole team to share a vision of what we're treating, what the steps are, where we're going, the idea of a checklist of exactly that being read aloud in the operating room during this event is a very powerful convener, if you, if you will, because the information is shared. The other aspect of it is that the multidisciplinary introduction and practice is meant to empower all the members of the team to reach for the checklist. You know, the same cognitive defect that I have during one of these emergencies at three in the morning that makes me struggle to remember the dose of a drug I could have told you off the top of my head first thing in the morning is the same cognitive defect that makes me overlook the fact that I've got this emergency manual two feet away. One of my happiest moments during our own implementation of this was somewhere along the way, we had a patient have a ventricular tachycardia arrest during an orthopedic procedure. The anesthesia staff was doing what they had to do. The initial management steps without being asked 
the circulating nurse went and pulled her copy of the crisis checklist off her desk, opened it to ventricular tachycardia, and brought it up to the head of the bed. I said, we have now reaped the fruit (laughs) of having a multidisciplinary implementation effort. Okay. Thanks. I appreciate it. Go ahead, ahead, Fred, uh, and then Jen. Go ahead, Fred. Uh Uh-huh. I just wanted to bring out this point. At the beginning of this uh, webinar, I talked about the, the pediatric, the children, the dental sedation deaths, the malignant hyperthermia deaths, and of course, Joan Rivers. And you have to, what Alex is, is talking about and what we've shared is about the team approach from the provider side. And the, you can't stress that the most important, especially in this unique set, this office-based setting. But switching to the side of the patient, a lot of these deaths that have occurred, um, what we do know is that not all of the offices in the United States are accredited, only a small percentage. So the patients can empower themselves and educate themselves by asking about the credentials, the, the, uh, the accreditation, it, what happens in an emergency, how will they recover, how can they communicate. These are simple questions. Many people um, that go shop for offices, it's because of cost, convenience, and scheduling. That people uh, advertise that they can get this at a cheaper cost. The question is, if you give patients a tool, uh, a, a patient checklist, and say, can I ask a few questions? If you handed it to someone, you could say they don't have the emergency equipment, they don't have the personnel, or whether they do or they don't. We're not here to tell people to go to place X or place Y, but we can share with them the fact that is it prepared to handle that patient, that procedure, that location. So that's important from the patient side. The emergency crisis manual is for providers team building team approach. Okay, thanks. Important. Okay, Jen. No, I just I just want to if you can just bring up the slide on the um, uh, IHI's framework for safe, reliable, and effective care. I just want to point that we, we've talked about most of these domains today, right? So um, we've talked about the importance of teamwork and communication. Um, we're talking about reliability in a very um, high-risk, low-volume situation, and that is one of the key principles, um, you know, in the learning system part of this curve. We've talked about leadership and how, you know, we're leading, you're leading that, you know, the implementation really learning about how organizations, high-functioning organizations kind of really take this, um, you know, this amazing instrument that you've brought together to really mitigate risk in your setting. And then the last thing is we talked about transparency to patients. So transparency to them to say, you know what, we, we mess up every once in a while. We, you know, we don't, we're not we're not 100% all the time. And so we need to be transparent, um, you know, to our patients that there are questions that they should ask of us um, to keep us on task. So I think it's really important that this is a wonderful representation that the framework around systems of safety um, is is alive. And I'm very happy to be here today. So thanks. <laughs> thanks, guys. It was great. I appreciate yeah. it. Okay. Well, uh, let me have John uh, jump in here very quickly about an upcoming program. And then we're going to get some uh, wrap-up remarks from everybody. Go ahead. All right. Thanks, Madge. Um, a lot of discussion today around safety on WIHI, and, and we all know that the need for patient safety solutions, uh, they don't stop after the program ends. Um, that's why IHI is proud to invite you to the Patient Safety Executive Development Program. It's uh, now in its 16th year. PSE unites experienced clinicians from around the world with IHI and our trusted faculty, uh, guiding safety professionals towards actionable strategies, skills, and the right tools to lead strong and effective patient safety programs. Uh, PSE can help ensure that your patients receive the safe and reliable care that they deserve, and it helps foster the long-term health of your department and your healthcare system. The Patient Safety Executive Development Program takes place March 1st through March 7th, next year, 2018, at the IHI Boston offices. For more information, please visit IHI.org patient safety exec. All right. Thank you, John. Well, I mean, I think all of this is going to really have to start getting integrated. Uh, and, uh, you know, as you drill down into any situ- one particular situation in case, there's a level of complexity and then there are concepts that really uh, move across this. So um, let me start with you, Fred, just as a, kind of some parting uh, words here. Uh, 
you know, one thing that a reporter is always trying to determine, you know, is uh, is care getting safer uh, in the country or hospitals safer? Uh, and I just as you look at kind of what hills you're trying to climb here in this office environment, uh, where would you say you are? I mean, in terms of both awareness of these issues uh, should the public be concerned? Uh, I mean, are you kind of are you getting a good invitation, a good response uh, that folks are hungry uh, for this material? Well, we have to rely on the high profile media events to engage the public. We were we've tried through ISOBIS to have provider and patient education outreach programs. We've also tried the, uh, attempted to discuss these issues in in the media, and uh, but I think, um, as I said, we established this in 2009. We're um, we've met some of our goals, uh, short-term goals, with looking at the uh, the IHI, the adverse events, looking at outcomes, thanks to people like yourself, people like Alex Hanneberg, who started the Anesthesia Quality Institute, we're able to get data for that. Uh, my my um, ultimate goal would be to have uniform regulation in 50 states, mandatory reporting of outcomes, develop an evidence cl- case, uh, clinical standard of care in all specialties. I mean, these. so you can see we have a long way to go. I think we have made progress. I think the world is amenable to looking at um, checklists from the provider sense and the, uh, the patient sense. I think that people like Alex Hannenberg with Ariadne were coll- our collaboration uh, to gather all these checklists for the unique difference, the settings that we're in. I, I, I feel very positive about that. And as I said, we'll continue doing what we're doing and, um, and hopefully uh, webinars like this, educational programs, patient educational outreach, and it develop innovative tools so patients can secure um, uh, safe medical care for themselves and for their loved ones. All right. Well, Fred, thank you so much. Uh, I've learned so much uh, working on this with you, and I know we'll stay in touch and see how things progress. Alex, um, some thoughts from you. I, I've been thinking here about, well, this shouldn't be a surprise that anesthesiologists we're diving into this. Also, anesthesiologists have a, a wonderful history now of, of improving uh, in that sphere uh, in hospitals. Um, so it's it's interesting. You're clearly the leading spear in this area right now. Well, we have a we have a culture that has imbe- been embedded in the DNA of anesthesiologists for the past generation, yeah. and so the concept of system level improvements with dramatic impact is in our, is in our blood. So uh, I, I I agree with that. I've had several people, as you noted, during the past week, we've had a national conference for anesthesiologists. I've had several people comment that they felt that we were at the tipping point with respect to uh, the uh, use of checklists in medicine generally. The Ariadne checklists have been adapted for labor and delivery emergencies. They've been translated into multiple languages. Uh, more than 200,000 downloads of the translated checklist in China. Uh, so there is a lot going on in this space. I just uh, thought that I would close with one comment. We said, we said that we're talking about events that are rare and we consider them rare in the hospital operating room. I think Fred would agree that they ought to be even more rare in the office setting and the more rare these critical events, the more the need for these tools. It is not just surgical care in which you find critical events that are uncommon. So I would encourage listeners who work in a world far from surgery to think about what happens in their clinics or offices that they're scared of and try to become less scared and more capable in managing them by finding out how checklists could work in their settings. Great, great uh, thought. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Alex uh, Hennenberg, also, for all your help uh, with with putting together the show. Jennifer? 
Um, no, I mean, I think this was a great session. I'm giving Alex a high five over here because I, this is great work, um, you know, really advancing the space um, in the ambulatory space. And I, and I think to your, exactly what you, you know, really just highlighted here, it, it's critical to know your risks. Um, we're moving into new space in, in ambulatory. We've been doing that for five or 10 years. Now people are talking about it. Same thing in the post-acute space, know your risks and then arm yourself with some improvement skill to big, to start convening teams and, and mitigating that risk so that you can sleep at night. So, All right. Thank you, Jennifer Lenoche edwards Alex Hannenberg, and Fred Shapiro. It's been a real honor uh, to work with you to put all this uh, together. And um, I hope all of you who were very uh, attentive uh, d- during this WIHI will look for the link uh, to the program. Uh, we do send a follow-up email to everyone who's enrolled as well and share this uh, with others. Um, so you're, we that's why we put the link up there. So look for that uh, tomorrow. So big thank you to our audience, uh, to our guests today. Next up on WIHI on November 9th, we're going to be looking at healthcare innovation and R&D. We're taking the opportunity of a t- 10-year anniversary of innovation and R&D at IHI to look at that space, uh, stuff that IHI uh, has helped uh, spearhead and the field overall. So I hope you'll tune in for that. Don't forget, you can download the chat and the slides. uh, When you log off the program uh, today, you'll be prompted to do so. And we really do appreciate it when people fill out the survey. It's very brief. Let us know what you thought of the program and what we could do better. All right. So any questions whatsoever, I always say anything I forgot, email info at IHI.org. There are a great group of people who help make WIHI possible. They include John Gothier, Matt Morse, Vicki Minden, Haley Ladd, Joanna Carmona, Jameson Case, Val Weber, Mina Hadley, and Kiki Yee. And it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Have a good afternoon, everyone. Thank you. <music>